But we're going to be starting a series on Romans today. So I'm going to begin from chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm going to read the first seven verses. But just let me say that what I'm going to be doing this morning is more kind of um, given a background to set this book into before we go on and explore it over the, the coming weeks. So it'll be more of a setting a foundation today for studying the book of Romans. So we read from verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you for this this wonderful book of Romans and for all the great truths it has to share. And we pray that As we read this, we won't read it as if we're reading some kind of historical document, but we'll recognize that that this book has an unchanging message, a message that transformed lives in the time of Paul, that has transformed lives throughout history, and that is able again to transform lives today. As through this, we meet with you, our God, as we meet with the Savior you have given us, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, bless your word to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now, one of my my life ambitions, my ministry ambitions, I suppose, as I started out in ministry on the 20th of August, 1983, was that at some point I would preach through the book of Romans. Well, how blessed are you? (laughs) Not simply because today I'm preaching or beginning to preach through the book book of Romans, but because this is the second time I've done it, which I hope will mean that I do a better job this time than I did the last time. I don't think it was that bad the last time, but hey, you can always improve. The, The way, though, I intend to handle this incredible book is by trying to to break Romans down into its various sections, following the lines of the development of Paul's argument. So let me just reassure you, I'm not going to try and do a Martin Lloyd-Jones who preached on Romans, you'll be happy to hear, for over eight years. I don't have either the time or his ability, and I doubt whether you would have the stamina for that either. Rather, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, to break Romans down into to sections of teaching that I'm confident that you will be able to handle. Whether I'll be able to handle it is a different thing altogether, but we've got to start off, haven't we, with a bit of hope. 
But you know, Elaine looks out for you. She really does. Because you know what she said to me when I told her I was thinking of tackling Romans once more? What she said was, oh no, why are you preaching on Romans? Now I think that there were two things going on behind that question. That question, why? And I know it's a dangerous thing to try and read the mind of any woman, but I'll give it one more try. So why? First, in the sense of why inflict this on such nice people? Because you, me, you're going to get all involved in all the theology and the detail. And for you, it's going to be so interesting and so exciting. But for those who are listening to you, it will seem as if you're getting bogged down in detail. Boring. Now, to that why, again, I would want to say, don't worry. I'll try and do my best. But there's also why in the sense of, why is this practical? Is this relevant? Is the at times complex and challenging teaching of Romans really what the church, more what this church needs to hear at this point in time? Now that did get me thinking and wondering along, but as I, I began looking at Romans in depth, then my answer to that question is, a resounding yes. And let me tell you why. Why? Because the big question that lies at the heart of the book of Romans is a truth question. In fact, in a variety of slightly different ways, that's the question that concerns the whole of the Bible. For example, the, the Gospels, they're concerned with the truth question of whether Jesus really is the long-awaited Messiah. And the answer to that that is given in the Gospels is his life, death, and resurrection. And then Acts and Ephesians, they're concerned mainly with the question, is this, is the salvation that this Gospel offers, is this for all, or is it still just for the Jews? Now the answer that particularly Paul gave to that question through the doors of salvation wide open and led to the transformation of the world. The other question I think lies at the, the heart of Romans is, is closely connected to this. That is, how? How? How do we make this salvation ours? And how then, how should we live as a result of this. And this all, all boils down really to, to an aspect of truth, to the question of righteousness. That is, how do we live out the truth with integrity? And as the Australian writer David Seacombe, as he suggests here, how do we get into and remain in righteous standing with God? Now, this truth question is one that the church has had to revisit again and again throughout church history. And again and again, the book of Romans has had a crucial, a pivotal part to play. Just two examples for you. By the 16th century, the church had lost its way. The way to salvation had been littered by the need for priestly mediators, confessions, sacraments, penances, indulgences, etc., etc., 
Then a German monk, Martin Luther, consumed by a sense of his sin, by a sense of his separation from God, he set out to read the book of Romans. And this is what he says of this. I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts justly in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered that truth until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to have been reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of the gospel and the Bible took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate and fear, now it became the inexpressibly sweet and great expression of a sweet and greater love. This passage of Romans became to me a gateway into heaven. Look what he read in that opening passage, Romans 1.17. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Listen, Luther was transformed by this truth. And then the whole of Europe was transformed. But then two centuries later, the church in Britain once more was in the doldrums. The way of personal salvation again had been lost and it had become all about ritual and, and good works. So on the 24th of May, 1738, a man who lived trusting in these things but who found little joy in them he was found at a meeting in London where someone was reading Luther's preface to Romans. And this is what he says of that meeting. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This man was John Wesley, the father of Methodism and one of the architects of the great revival that swept through much of the world in the 18th century, whose impact is reflected in its title, The Great awakening. Now what I want to, to say to you today is that the church again in our time has to walk through this truth question of how we find salvation, of how we live out the life of salvation. For yes, we live again today, let me say to you, in a time where there is a truth crisis in the church and in our society. Now what am I getting at? Well I've already shared with you, I think, some time ago. The fact that in the 18th century, the world was hit at that time 
by a world-changing, a culture-changing movement called the Enlightenment, or alternatively, the Age of Reason. And that title, again, really gives it all away. This is about the discovery of the, the supposed omnipotence or omnicompetence of human reason. That the focus from now on was all to be about man and about the power of the intellect, about man basically replacing God. That man, particularly by science, man could answer all the questions and solve all the problems of our world. And this, what this led into was what we call the modern era. And that's the era that the vast majority of us here, at least, were brought up in. Now, now let me just say now that this modern era with its emphasis on the human mind and on science, that this has led to advances in society, changes in our society, to a speed of change and development that is unparalleled in human history. As men and women from that point have set their mind to studying and analysing this world, this has led to incredible steps forward in things like medicine and communication, transport, going to the moon, etc. And it's resulted in a, a standard of living and an expected lifespan now that would be beyond the wildest dreams of our forefathers. They could never have dreamt this to be possible. But modernism at the same time did have and does have its weaknesses. For you see, the focus on the mind tends to ignore the emotional and particularly the spiritual dimension to life. It can become a matter of as long as you think and as long as through your thinking you can understand things correctly, then that's all that really matters. How you live and how you behave is, is very much secondary. Also, this focus on the mind and on reason had an inclination towards arrogance built into it and can lead to extremism. You know, what we, by our minds, have discovered is true, is right. And it is right. And so we have to share that, even impose that on others. We have to bring them to an understanding of our understanding of the truth. One result of this being colonialism, where we felt justified, we even felt compelled to share Western civilization with the rest of the world, whether they wanted it or not. And ultimately, this kind of mindset was one of the, the driving forces behind the horrors of Nazism and communism. However, and this is what's important, we live today at a time when there seems to be the beginnings of a protest, maybe more than the beginnings, where there seems to be a moving on from this. And, and that is what's been labelled popularly as postmodernism, implying that, that modernism has failed, implying that its time is over and that we are now moving on. Because, you see, science hasn't dealt with all our problems. It hasn't answered all our questions. As human beings, we're so much more than a, a flesh-encased mind. And the arrogant of the West, believing that, that we know the truth, that our way is the best way, even the only way, well, as we've said, this has led to so much conflict at every level in human life. And so often, 
what we have believed to be right and what we've argued for and at times even fought for has actually eventually proved to be wrong. So how people say, can we live committed to this kind of philosophy anymore? Now, if I was to try and sum up the differences here between these two as simply as possible, well, most commonly, it's put something like this. Modernism believes that there is only one right way, that there's only one true story, one, as they put it, meta-narrative. And modernism deals in absolutes, absolutes that have to be discovered and then rigorously led by. Whereas in postmodernism, that's done away with. There are many different stories, it said, many different truths, many different and equally valid ways of looking at and understanding our world. Postmodernism, then, the world that we more and more live in today, is about relativism. That is, everything is relative. Truth is what's true for you. And if it seems to work for you, if it seems to bring pleasure to you, then that's enough. That's all that matters. The, bu- the buzzword of postmodernism is tolerance. That's what they say. The only thing, though, that many people today won't tolerate is when we have an opinion that there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong. They don't like that. Just having that opinion is enough to make those who preach tolerance actually very intolerant. Now, again, let me just be clear here. There are many good things and many opportunities for the church that this new postmodern era brings if we grasp them. But there are, for example, there are people who are awakening to the fact more and more that there's more to man than the physical. That there is. They're on the the lookout for the spiritual. They're looking for somewhere to develop and somewhere to exercise their spirituality. People today often are looking for a faith. But they're looking for a faith that's not just talked about and taught and argued and discussed, but rather they're looking for a faith that is actually lived out. They're looking for a faith that shows itself, demonstrates itself in our standards, in our values, in our attitudes, in the way that we behave, and particularly towards those in need. So you see, people who just a few years ago were saying we're not interested in the spiritual, they are now looking out for spirituality. But tragically, as they now look towards the church, some of them at least, a few of them, their verdict too often seems to be that there's not much true spirituality to be seen. And what a challenge that is. What a challenge to us. A challenge to get close to God, to know him and to live out a truly holy life that's actually full of the compassion and the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. But there is a danger at the same time in this new postmodern world that we live in, which, like it or not, we do live in the midst of. For you see... The danger lies, really, in this whole area of truth. It's all about this truth question. This idea 
that there is no such thing as final, absolute truth, that everything is relative, all truth is relative. This hits hard our Christian faith. For what we say is that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Is that arrogance? You know, the world out there thinks that it is increasingly. They think that is arrogance. To say that is to be labelled bigoted and prejudiced. And you know, when even evangelical Christians, when they jump on this bandwagon, and when they let go of the fact that there is such a thing as absolute truth, when this happens, then they begin to let go of their respect and their obedience to the Bible, and it happens and comes with catastrophic effects. Let me just give you an example. Steve Chalk is a good friend of mine when I was training for ministry, and Steve at that point was one of the most likeable people you could meet, really charming guy, funny guy, someone I thought and do think so much of, but he in in 2003 wrote a book called The, the Lost Message of Jesus. And it's, it's a book in which his, his stated and main aim, and it's a commendable aim in itself, was the desire to expound the great biblical truth. God is love. In terms of how God's people should love the loveless, how they should embrace the untouchable, how they should forgive the unforgivable, welcome the marginalized, etc. And a 100% agreement so far. But you see... Because Steve has been affected, because he, it would seem, and I think he has, has embraced this mindset that all truth is relative, that there are many different truths nowadays, that the the old certainties of the past, that these no longer stand, that what really matters, he says, is being nice and tolerant and loving with anything that might be interpreted as being intolerant to be very much avoided. Because of this, And from the starting point that God is love, Steve makes some very disturbing statements. And he comes to some very disturbing conclusions because he makes God's love not one major facet of his character, but rather he makes it the dominant controlling feature. And so other aspects of God's character, like, for example, his holiness, are very much toned down. Don Carson, a really fine American scholar, he comments, he says, for chalk, holiness domesticated by his controlling understanding of love. Holiness becomes a way of talking about God's pain as he gazes upon a broken world. Chalk argues that God in Exodus 33 tells Moses that no one can gaze on his face and live because it is so contorted with suffering. No one can bear to see a face wrong with such infinite pain and live. This speculation, though, runs into problems in the light of an earlier verse, Exodus 32.10, where God says, Now leave me, so that my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them. But you see... Starting from this position of letting go of the old certainties. 
seeking to find new, tolerant and loving, acceptable forms of truth that fit in with our world today. And then focusing on God's love to the detriment of God's holiness. Well, Steve then goes on, having abandoned any kind of biblical understanding of holiness because it's not acceptable to today's tolerant world. He goes on from this to undercut what the Bible says about sin. And you know, there's, there is a, a kind of tragic logic here because once you've tamed God's holiness, well, once you've done that, then sin doesn't seem to matter so much. For why should anything less than a God of burning and brilliant holiness be offended by sin? So he undercuts sin, makes sin basically nothing. And his final step is really the saddest of all. For having devalued God's holiness and then having devalued sin, Steve finally devalues the cross. Because no longer does he see the cross as God's son paying the penalty for our sin. Rather, instead, this is what he says. He says that the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. An awful phrase. A vengeful father punishing a son for an offence he has not even committed. Understandably, he says, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, he goes on, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards mankind, but born by his Son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. What now is his view of the cross? His view is that instead of it being the atoning sacrifice of God's Son, that instead it's reduced to a symbol of love. It's an example of love. You know, he's arrived at the place where the liberals have been for the last 200 years. He's got a right to do that. What annoys me is he still calls himself an evangelical. But it breaks my heart to find a man who once preached evangelical faith at this point. And I just want to cry out to him. I wish I could get a word with him. Steve, the fact is that Christ gave himself willingly for me to pay for my sin. There is no greater love than that. And the fact is that the cross isn't a matter of evil being repaid by evil. No, rather, it is about evil being overcome. Being overcome by the same blindingly holy but pure love of God. That's what it's about. But you see, like it or not, this is what Steve's saying, and he is reflecting a movement, a shift that's going on in the church, and more and more. And his view is influential. He's a man of influence, particularly among younger Christians. And his more recent books have not improved. They've not improved. He attacks God's word, he attacks the teaching of Paul, etc. But how do we respond 
to the truth question he's asking. How do we respond to this truth crisis that he's a part of? Well, let's begin by confessing that, at the, that in the past we have at times, within the evangelical church, been arrogant with regard to truth. We have. We at times have made our mind up and we've been ready to get into conflict with others over relatively minor issues. We have, and we've been proud, been arrogant. We've dismissed people because they've disagreed with us. We refuse to have any kind of meaningful relationship with people because they have not agreed with every little thing that we believe. And I think that's wrong. However, while we do need to be humble with regard to the truth, and let me say in this regard, I think we should be very wary of holding as absolute and unchangeable any truth that is an invention of man. Having said that, it is different with truth that comes from God. It is different with the truth of God's word that relates and opens up clearly the major doctrines of our faith. It is different. This is absolute. This is certain. And this is, in its essence, unchanging. It never changes. Now, of course, we still need to be humble, even with the truth of God's word, because though it is true, our understanding can at times be limited. There is yet more light and truth. So we need to be prepared still to listen to others graciously. We need to be ready graciously to allow them to be different in their thinking from us in minor areas. But I want to say, once we are convinced of the key truths of God's word, by the study of God's word, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, his divinity, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we know these truths that are clear in the Bible, then we need to hold to these truths. We need to teach them. We need to live by them. Unless, until from God's word, not popular opinion, until from God's word, in some way, minor ways around the edges of these things, we're convinced otherwise. So you see, again, this book of Romans has the potential to be, again, of crucial, pivotal importance. For it's in, in the book of Romans, it's in the message of Romans, that God's truth, what God says about this way to salvation, who is to be saved, and above all, how we can make this salvation ours, and how we should then live as a result of that, all of us, is there to be found in Romans. And this is the message that I want to unpack with you and explore with you in the weeks and months to come. I don't want to convince you of my opinion. I don't want you simply to believe what I believe. No, I want us together to discover God's truth and then commit ourselves to that truth, commit ourselves to him. And you know, there's enough of the message uh, of Romans in just these opening few verses, enough that's touched on in this, hinted at here, to in itself, to correct a lot of the error that we've looked at so far. For example, the truth that salvation is for all mankind. Paul explicitly states that he's been commissioned, doesn't he? Verse 5, to call people from among the Gentiles. See, it's not just for a special people. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for a few people. It's for all. It's for you. And this truth that God's love 
is balanced by his holiness. That the two belong together in harmony. For Jesus, we're told, verse 4, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. The truth that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 5, it says, the obedience that comes from faith. Faith in Jesus. In the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who on the cross died for our sin. There paid the penalty for our sin. For, for our turning from God. Our disobedience to God. And who then rose from the dead. Demonstrating as he did so. That by his death he has broken the power of sin. That he has defeated death and sin and Satan. For again we read in verse 4. Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so now, we who through Jesus know God, we know that it is possible to know again life as it's always meant to be. We know today, as we know Jesus, that it is possible for something of the life of heaven to break into our life right here and right now. That's what Paul's getting at, I think, in verse 7, where he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, grace is about God's kindness, his undeserved love. Peace, shalom, is about the total sense of well-being, of being absolutely in every way at peace that comes through being reconciled to God through Christ. And what Paul's saying here, is that that's the life that God wants for us, for all of us. A life overflowing with love. A life where we are at peace. Not incidentally where we're always living in peace, because that's impossible in a sinful world. But where no matter what comes our way, it cannot take away the peace that we know in our heart through Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of the message of Romans. That's the truth, the un unchanging, the truth of God's word. And you know, if you, if you don't know this already, what we've been talking about this morning, then I would say, believe it now. Put your faith in it now. This gospel message, put your faith in Jesus. Trust him as your savior. Give your life to him as your Lord, your leader. And then this life can begin for you now. You don't have to wait till we finish Romans, we go through Romans. God doesn't want anyone to wait. He wants us all right now to put our faith in his truth in Jesus Christ so that we can begin real life right here, right now. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you that in the world that we live in today, a world where Truth is under attack where it's all about just accepting everything and where to say that there is such a thing as truth gets you called a bigot and intolerant. Father, we pray, help us never to let go of those great central truths of our faith. Help us to do more than believe them, though. Help us to live them. But Lord, as we do so, help us to point to Jesus 
and to bring glory to his name. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.